0: Ordinary Men. That wasn't the actual title. That would be an interesting one day I might title it, title here. Um, but this morning's uh, service is 12 Ordinary Men. Um, I, uh, when I was a teenager, I uh, started, I was, I was attending church here, for some of you may not know my story. I've been here for, uh, for a number of years and when I was a teenager attending church here, one of the things that I was a part of starting was a church softball team, and uh, I liked uh, playing baseball, not that I was all that good at it, but I liked playing it, and then I had heard about a church in the area that had a, a fundraising tournament on Memorial Day weekend, and it was a one-day tournament that went all day. Those of you that are here that remember those days, you understand that I mean it went all day, we started at about 7 in the morning at a field out in Winchinton or Gardner or some town out in the Midwest. I don't know. Um, but it was we start we, we so we left here about 5 o'clock uh, in the morning to start playing softball about seven in the morning and it was double elimination and you just played until you lost two games and if you kept winning the last games end up playing uh, trying to beat the darkness at about seven or eight o'clock at night uh, would be the finish of the last games in a couple years we ended up playing all day in those last games and it was a lot of fun Um, and I as I got a chance to start it we had one team as we went first Uh, But then it began to catch on, and more people began to get excited about going, so we brought two teams and then three teams. And uh, as we did, we had to decide, would we bring one team that we would stack with players to try and win the whole tournament, or would we kind of split our talent evenly over three teams and just, you know, everyone go and have fun and, and, you know, decide what to do there. Now, you have to understand, when I say if you weren't there... When I say church softball tournament, you may be thinking uh, blankets on the lawn, fried chicken, kumbaya, and everyone around sitting around singing hallelujah. Um, There may have been some of that. But there was also teams that would stack their players. I think they flew them in from other states just to play in this tournament. There was no PED testing, and I think some of them needed it. And and there were some guys, they came in and they were just serious about winning this tournament. And they'd have these guys that were huge, that could hit the ball. If it wasn't a mile, it was close to a mile. And so some of these teams, you know, you'd have young kids who were just, you know, middle school or high schoolers. And they'd just spend their whole day just chasing balls that people hit a mile away. And so we decided, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to stack one team and try and win the tournament, and then we'll have a couple other teams that will go, and, and they probably won't have much chance to win, but they'll go. They'll have fun. It's a fundraiser for Speed the Light, but we'll have one team that we'll cheer on and try and win the whole thing. And so I was on that team for a couple years, but then as time goes on and more players come and I get older, there came a year where it was apparent that I was not in the top 10 players and I would not be on that A team and so I started playing on the B team we didn't call it the B team because we didn't want to give anyone some kind of issues or anything like that so we just called them by colors it was actually a strategy to throw off the tournament organizers we didn't want them to know which was our A team real Christian like right Um, but that's (laughs) but then so we had the red the blue and the white team and I played on the red team and and, uh, and so I tried to tell people we were on that team because some of them may have felt a little slighted to be on that team. And I would tell them, we're not the B team. We're the red team. And, uh, and so that was, it was fun. We played and we had a good time and we, we, did, uh, we did okay a few years. Uh, but the one thing um, that occurs to me, the reason I bring that up this morning is because maybe, you know what happened in that tournament is no matter who you were, you were all thrown in one big pool of people to play against each other. Whether you were a team stacked with semi-pro softball players that, you know, played most of the year. And when it was winter up here, you were down in Florida playing softball. There were guys like that in this tournament. Or you were a team of 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th grade girls and boys who didn't even know, uh, just learned which hand to put the glove on. You, all these teams played against each other in this tournament. And so you would have these guys just jacking home runs and these, you know, kids just chasing the ball and bringing it back, chasing the ball. And sometimes they would have mercy and sometimes they would just keep chasing the ball and bringing it back. But I guess the the thing that can be frustrating sometimes is when you find yourself with B-team talent and a big league schedule. Have you ever felt that you're in a situation... Where you had B team talent, and you were maybe a B team talent, and yet you had a big league challenge ahead of you. You had an A league expectation in front of you, and uh, and so you come into it and you look at yourself. Maybe maybe it's a challenge at work. Uh, maybe a new work situation that you walk into, and you just look around you, and everyone else seems smarter and more qualified and more experienced, or maybe you just look at, uh, you know, you walk into a situation uh, in in your life. Maybe even you walk into a church, and you say, man, everyone seems like they've got it more together. They know more than I do. They have more experience. And you feel sometimes like I've got B-league talent, but there's a big league challenge and expectations in front of me. When we come to the passage this morning in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. It's the passage where Jesus chooses his disciples. And as Jesus chooses these 12 guys, if you and I were picking them, and we were to say, you need to choose 12 guys to change the world. They're going to be the foundation, they're going to be the charter members of an organization that is going to change the city of Jerusalem at the time and then the nation of Israel and then the empire of Rome and then we'll go out to the entire world and will last until the end of time expanding out throughout the world so that billions and billions of people will not only get on board but they will get on board to the point where they will give everything and even risk their lives for the cause of this ministry, and organization, if you were planning for that mission, you probably wouldn't choose these guys. These guys may have been the B team, but they were probably more the C or the D team if many of us were trying to discern who to pick. Uh, they They were not the ones that you'd probably go around and say, yeah, these are the ones that are going to do it. The uh, when the NFL uh, National Football League has their draft, uh, the last player picked in the draft after seven or so rounds of drafting, the last player picked by the last team uh, has been uh, through the years kind of given a name that uh, that's probably not very flattering, but he's called Mister Irrelevant. He's Mr. Irrelevant. He's the last pick in the NFL draft and probably not much is going to come of them. You look at these names of these 12 guys and you might think they're probably 12 Mr. Irrelevants. And yet Jesus chose them. Jesus chose them. They may look like B-league talent, but they had a big league challenge that God had given them and they were more than able to meet it. Let's look at the passage this morning and we're going to look at why or how they were able to meet this challenge and what the challenge or the task they were given because I believe it's the same one that's given to us today. Mark chapter 3 verse 13 says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him, and that th- that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed: Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter; James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. If you're hearing that list for the first time ever, you might think, well, they're just a group of names. I don't know if they're B-league talent or big league talent. Uh, But most of them, none of them were religious leaders. None of them were, as far as we can tell, highly educated men. In fact, it's quite likely they weren't. Because if they were highly educated, if they were the best of the best of the best, then they would have been recruited by some rabbi to be in his to be his disciples, to be his followers. That's what happened to the smartest and the best and the best of the best in Israel. Everyone went to uh, school. Everyone learned the Torah, and then those who were the best would get chosen to continue an education. And then those who were the best of that group would eventually get selected by a rabbi to follow him and to learn from him and to be his disciples. These guys weren't the disciples of any rabbi. They were fishermen. They had other professions. So they weren't the best of the best. One author said that uh, Peter, you know, of this group kind of describing them, he says Peter was an optimist. But Thomas was a pessimist. Simon was a zealot hating taxes and eager to overthrow the Roman government. But also there was Matthew, who had voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services to the same Roman government. Peter, John, and Matthew were destined to become renowned through their writings. But then there's James, who remains obscure and yet must have fulfilled his mission. These 12 guys, relatively unknown, at best, B-league talent, and yet Jesus chose them. Now, don't get too hung up on the the part of the verse that says, if you flip back to that last slide, John, the first one, the first part of these verses that says, he called to him those he wanted. Some people come to that and they think, well, maybe I'm not one of the wanted ones. Maybe I'm not one of the ones that Jesus would call to him. And I just want to say something about that right in the, in the beginning before we, before we get into it, because I think some people would come to that and say, well, Jesus called the ones he wanted, but there must have been others he didn't call, and what if I'm in that other group? Don't get too hung up on that, because what's happening here is Jesus had a very particular task that needed to be accomplished and he was calling the men to that task after prayer with his Heavenly Father who he felt and we don't know why the Bible doesn't tell us why a lot of people speculate why he chose them but we don't know why all we know is he chose them but he chose the ones that he thought would best complete the task God often does this throughout the Bible God often does this throughout the Bible God chose Noah to build the ark were there other people around of course but he chose Noah to build the ark God chose Abraham to be the father of the Jewish people. Were there others around? Yes, but God chose Abraham. Why? Because God chose him. I don't know why. God chose uh, Joseph to lead his people into Egypt, and then he chose Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Uh, God chose David as king. Uh, God chose the prophets to write his scriptures. God chose the tribe of Levi to be his priest. God is constantly choosing people to do certain things and certain tasks for him. He chose John the Baptist to be a forerunner of Jesus. He chose Mary to, to uh, carry uh, Jesus when he was incarnated by, you know, on earth through the Holy Spirit. And he chose the 12 disciples to be apostles. God's often choosing. It doesn't mean that he didn't love all the other women in the area, and that he only loved Mary. It doesn't mean that he only loved Moses and didn't love the other Israelites. In fact, he chose Moses because he loved all the other people. And so God chooses for a very particular reason and task, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Were there other disciples? Of course. We know that. Later on, he'll send out 72. Later on, we'll hear about 120 at Pentecost. There were were other disciples. But he chose these 12 for a very particular task and for a very particular reason. And he chooses you for a very particular task and a very particular reason. And so you have these 12 guys that we don't know why they were chosen, but we do know this. We know what they looked like before and we know what they looked like after. Before... There are 12 guys who can't even get along with each other. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, arguing about who's the greatest, arguing about who's going to have the most power, arguing about who is going to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. 12 guys who can't even get along, but at the end of their lives, we see that one of them will betray Jesus, of course, in Judas Iscariot. Ten of them will die martyrs' deaths as they preach the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Church history tells us that they, ten of them, will die martyrs for the kingdom. The one who doesn't, that church history tells us, uh, lived out and died a quote-unquote natural death would be the Apostle John. Uh, I say natural death because he died exiled on the island of Patmos and had already been tortured and boiled for his belief in Jesus. So what happened to these guys? What happened to this B-league talent that went from being a group of guys that can't get along with themselves to a group of guys that go to their deaths and transform the world for Jesus? What happened in the middle, and the difference was their time with Jesus. What happened in the middle was their time with Jesus. So in this passage, Jesus gives them three things. He says this. He says he called them that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and that they would have authority to drive out demons. These are the three things he called his apostles to. I believe they're the three things that he calls us to as well because we are an extension of the apostles. They were the first, but we continue on their work. They were the first ones he called, but we continue on their mission that God called them to. So first of all, they were called to be with him. I think this is an important part of the verse that we often miss. That Jesus didn't just call them and send them out to work. He first called them to walk. To walk with him. See, all the work for Jesus flows out of walking with Jesus. Sometimes we want to be so, we get so excited about working for Jesus that we forget that it all flows out of a walk with Jesus. The difference between who you are and who you will become is the time you spend with Jesus. The difference between who the disciples were and who they would become was simply their time with Jesus. Spending more time with Jesus will cause you to become more like him. I mean, it's true of anything you spend time with, right? You become who you spend more time with. You ever seen a married couple who's been married many, many years? And they can complete each other's sentences, and they know what the other person's thinking, because you spend time with each other. And if you spend time with Jesus over time, you start to act like Jesus. You start to know what Jesus would do, and what Jesus would say. And you do that, yes, through coming to together with the gathering of believers like this we do that through spending time in prayer spending time in his word spending time listening to him and suddenly we start acting like him and Jesus knew that that's what it would take for these 12 men that if they would spend time with him then he knew that he could trust them with his work who you are now and what you think you have now is not what matters when it comes to doing the job god has called you to what matters is who you are with See, we look at ourselves sometimes and we think, well, I'm B-league talent and I can't do anything great for God. But it's not who you are right now, it's who you're with. And it's your time with Jesus that really makes the difference. When we are with Jesus and we find out what, when we are with Jesus, we find out what he wants us to do and we find out that he gives us the strength to do it. You might not see a great godly leader. Others may look at you and say, oh, no, B-league talent. I'm not picking them. But Jesus has the final word. I think a lot of people would have passed over Peter. So, man, that guy's always putting his foot in his mouth. You know, that that guy is always jumping out before everyone else. That guy is just going to get us into trouble. We don't want Peter. But Jesus said, no, Peter, you're a rock upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And, and then Peter became a great uh, preacher and leader in the early church. We wouldn't choose him. And yet it wasn't about how Peter saw himself. It wasn't about how other people saw him. It was about his time with Jesus and how Jesus saw him. You've got to walk with someone before you can work for them. You've got to walk with someone before you can work for them. It's like uh, you wouldn't give someone a power of attorney that you hadn't spent time with and really know them. You wouldn't just ask a stranger off the street to serve as, as your medical uh, you know, liaison to make medical decisions for your life without knowing them. This is what Jesus knew. That if I walk with these guys, that if I walk with them for years, they'll get to know me, I'll get to know them, and I'll be able to trust them. With the future of the kingdom. And so you've got to walk with someone before you can work with them. And so that's the first, uh, most important thing that we've got to understand. But the second thing is, Jesus called them to preach. He called them to preach and to proclaim the Word of God. And I believe He still calls you and me to do this as well. He still calls you to share the gospel. Actions are great, actions are foundational. But the first thing, and eventually what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to at some point speak. Actions are necessary but not sufficient for someone coming to Christ. You're going to have to at some point share the propositional truth of the gospel with them so that they can respond in faith to Jesus Christ and put their trust and hope in them. And so Jesus has called his original disciples to preach, and he's called you and I to preach as well, to share the gospel with those around us. And I think sometimes uh, we might think, well, it's someone else's job. Someone else is going to do it. You know, I'm praying, oh, God, would you bring someone along to share Jesus with my neighbor, with my family, with my mother, with my father. And yet, maybe Jesus has you there so that you can be the one who would share with that person, who would share with that friend. Sharing starts with a conversation, and a conversation starts with a relationship, and a relationship starts with caring about people and caring about God. You know, Rick Warren said, I can only win my friends to Jesus. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. That the people that we will have a chance to share Jesus with are the people who are our friends. I mean, you may have some chance to share with someone on the street or that you've never met before. But for the most part, this person that's going to give you permission to talk about the most important things in life with them will be your friends. So then the question comes up is, Do you have friends that don't know Jesus? Are you in relationship with people who don't know Jesus so that you can fulfill this call to preach and to share? Let me put the question another way that kind of challenged me a little bit more. Not, can you name me friends that don't know Jesus, but how many people do you know that don't know Jesus would call you their friend? How many people that are unchurched, that aren't yet following Christ would say, yeah, they're my friend. Because I think that's a bigger challenge. For me to live my life in such a way that not that I could call them friend, but that they would call me friend. And they would say, yes, yes, they're my friend and they, are, uh, they uh, care about me because it's only people that we are friends with that we'll have the chance to share Jesus with. And so it starts with a conversation with someone. Maybe you say, well, I don't preach. don't have to think of it as preaching. It's sharing Jesus with somebody. And maybe it starts just with a conversation. You know, the conversation could be, you know, someone's talking about a difficult time they're going through, and you might say, I don't know how I would react in that situation without my faith man, I don't know how I would be able to handle what you are going through if I didn't have Jesus in my life. Maybe the conversation starts like that. See, we think it sometimes has to be so difficult. Maybe the conversation starts, can I pray with you? Or maybe you have a mom that's struggling with her, with her child, and she's saying, I just can't figure it out. They were such a perfect little angel, and I don't know what happened. And you might start a conversation, well, I know. It's times like this that make me believe in original sin. You know, that, that, you know if, if you, it's times like this that make me remember that we all have this thing within us that wants to rebel against authority. It, it just starts a conversation. And sometimes you think, well, you know, I, I've got to stand up and preach to somebody, but many times it's just starting a conversation and turning it towards Jesus. Or maybe you're just going to do what I talked about a few weeks ago, what Pastor Matt Chandler does. You know, when someone finds out he's a pastor, you know, he says, well, yeah, I'm a pastor, so now we're going to have to have the Jesus conversation at some point, now that you know that. And so someone finds out you're a Christian, your response would be, yeah, and because you know that, now I'm obligated. At some point, we're going to have to have this conversation about Jesus. So we can do it here and now, or we can do it later, but we're going to have to have this conversation. And maybe you just handle it that way. We're just going to have to talk about Jesus because now you know I'm a Christian, and that's my that's my obligation. Or maybe it happens, you know. Last week I was talking to uh, someone, and it just happens like this. I was um, talking to uh, someone who doesn't know doesn't know Jesus that I know of, and and uh, he had something stolen from him that was val- had his, his cell phone stolen, and he was really upset about his cell phone being stolen, and he was really upset because. He thought he knew who did it. In fact, he was pretty sure he knew who did it. And he was even more upset because he knew who did it, and he had shown kindness to this person, even while this person was ripping him off and stealing his phone. And so there was a part of him that was that was really upset and really and really mad. And 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 so I'm just talking to him, and while I'm talking, I'm praying. And just kind of, you know, silently say, God, would you, you know, open the door? What, what could I say here that might turn him, turn the conversation towards you? And so then he said, you know, it's just, I hate when it's like this because it seems so unfair. And I thought, well, there's my door. And I said, yeah, you know, I hate that this world is so unfair. It, it is. I said, you know, when I'm talking to my kids, you know, they're always telling me how unfair life is. And my response to them, you know, and I stole this from Andy Stanley, is fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. And I said, you know, I believe there really was a time when everything was fair. When everything, the amount you put in was what you got out, the result was equal to the cause, everything was fair in the way it should be, and then things got messed up. And with sin, and now things aren't fair. And I kind of left it at that. And then he started asking questions. And he started saying, yeah, well, you know, what is the... And, we, and the subject started to change. And he started asking, you know, what, how do you deal with this in the Bible? You know, this has always, this has always, you know, troubled me. And how do you... And the conversation, we started talking about the Bible and challenges he had in the Bible and, and challenges to him believing. And it just started with steering the conversation towards a godly perspective of the situation. I didn't, I didn't start preaching didn't give an altar call, just started to turn the conversation to a a biblical worldview and perspective and allowed him to steer the conversation asking questions. And sometimes that's, that's, that's all it takes. And so there's situations where God has put you in, and he is. He's sending you there to preach. He's sending you there to share the gospel. But you can't do it on your own. As I mentioned, they are, you know, in those conversations, in those times, I'm, I'm praying in my spirit silently. Holy Spirit, steer this conversation. Holy Spirit, lead. Holy Spirit, guide this. Because we go back to the first point. Until you walk with Jesus, you cannot work for Jesus. And it's not you that brings anyone to Christ It's Jesus himself that draws them. It's not you that transforms a life. It's Jesus that transforms a life. It's not you that is able to make someone come to the point where they say, yes, I will live my life for Jesus. It's Jesus that does that in their life. And so you pray and you say, you say, God, would you steer this conversation? Would you help this person come to a place of opening their eyes to you? Because you can't work for God until you walk with God the second part that he sends them out to do is to drive out demons and I said I think you and I are called to do the same things they were called to I'm not sure how many demons you've driven out lately but let me put it a different way maybe you say well I don't know about this driving out demons business I've never been a part of seeing driving out a demon I haven't either I don't know a lot about it either. I've heard a lot of stories about it. I've talked to some people that have been a part of it, but I have never personally, that I know of, because I've prayed for a lot of people, and if a demon came out of them, maybe, I don't know. But uh, but I, I, I don't know that I've been personally really a part of seeing this happen. I do believe it happened in the Bible. I do believe it's possible and happens now. I do believe that there are spiritual forces working. But let me put it a different way. You are called by Jesus... To work for him in a context where there's a spiritual battle going on. You are called by Jesus to help be a part of seeing people set free from spiritual forces that hold their soul and their lives in bondage. I may not be able to point to it and say, yeah, this is a demon, but I do know Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the battle that we face and the spiritual battle that we face. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And it says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's what I know. We're in a spiritual battle. I don't know that I can always point to a demon like Jesus knew exactly when a demon was present. I don't have a checklist to say, yeah, this one's a demon and this one's a spiritual force and this one's possession and this one's oppression. I don't have that kind of checklist, but I do know this, that there are spiritual forces at work in people's lives. And there's a spiritual battle that's going on. And it's not something that's to be fought in the flesh. And it's not something that's to be fought in our own strength. In fact, don't try and fight it in your own strength because you'll lose. The spiritual battle is to be fought in the spiritual realm. In fact, if you go in the book of Acts, there were some guys that tried it. The book of Acts describes these guys' seven sons of a man named Sceva. And they tried casting out demons in Paul's name and and they said, well, uh, the demons started to talk. And they said, look, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but who are you guys? They couldn't cast out demons in their own strength. It's only through the Holy Spirit and being in relationship with Jesus that you're able to do any damage or any battle in this spiritual realm. So again, you've got to walk with Jesus before you're going to work with him. You can't go out and do this kind of spiritual battle without walking with Jesus. But here's what he calls you to. He calls you and I to pray and to do battle in the spiritual realm. In 2 Corinthians, the chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And you thought they just didn't understand. And you thought, well, they're just not getting it. And you thought it just had to be explained a different way. But Paul says, no, 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 there's a spiritual battle going on. There's an enemy that's trying to blind their eyes to seeing the truth. And if you try just to it in your logic or you try to argue someone into the kingdom or you try in your own strength it's not going to be enough because there's a spiritual battle going on and so it needs to be fought with spiritual weapons in the spiritual realm it needs to be fought in prayer and if there's someone that that, that you really you're, you're praying for you say you know I, I want this person to come and be set free i want this person to come to jesus it's not about reading another book about how to tell them in another clever way. It's about getting on your knees, fighting the battle in prayer, fighting a spiritual battle for their soul and asking Jesus to meet them. Yes, doing all you can to show love to them, to speak the gospel to them, to preach, to share. Yep, doing all you can to do that, but not ignoring the fact that this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. And so there's this aspect of it that's important for us to see. And maybe you say, well, I can't do this. No, you can't, because you're a B-team player. You got B-team talent. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm the first one to break it to you, but you got B-team talent. But you've been called to a big league task. And the difference isn't that you don't know enough. The difference isn't that you haven't read the right books. The difference isn't that you haven't, you know, heard the right message or sat in church though know, long enough. That's not the difference. The difference is who you're with. The difference is spending time with Jesus. The difference between Simon, whose name means shifting sands, and Peter, whose name means rock, was his time with Jesus. The difference between Saul who persecuted the church and Paul who became the greatest church planter ever was his encounter in time with Jesus. And the difference between who you are right now and who God wants to use you to be is your time with Jesus. That's what will make the difference in your life and in mine. And you might think, well, I'm not the person to lead my co-worker to Jesus. I'm not the person to see my family member come to Jesus. I'm not the person to see my friend set free from addiction. I'm not the person to be able to see my children come back to God. And yet God doesn't see who you are. He sees what you can become when you spend time with Jesus. That you can be that person. You can be that person in Christ. Let me close with this story. And we close with this story just from Francis Chan, pastor out in California. Uh, Francis Chan had been uh, uh, having some missionaries come into his church. And he had a couple missionaries come in on successive weeks. And the interesting thing is, when they shared their story, they had something in common. These guys didn't know each other for all Francis knew, but they had a person that they knew in common named Vaughn. Vaughn was the last name. And, And, um, and uh, he said, um, the first missionary came and said, you know, I wouldn't be doing any of this work if it wasn't for Vaughn. And uh, Francis thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know this Vaughn guy, but okay. And then the second guy, the next week came, and he told his story about working for God and doing all these things for God and, and making a big difference for God. And then he closed his time with saying, you know, it's all because of Vaughn that, uh, that I'm out here doing this missionary work. And then Francis had a third missionary come on the third week, and he shared his story, and he didn't mention Vaughn. But Francis said, you know, the strangest thing happened the last couple weeks. I had these people come, and they both said they were doing this missions work because of Vaughn. And the guy, the, then the guy turned to Francis and said, I know Vaughn. He said, I was with Vaughn last week. He says Vaughn lives down in San Diego and he pastors down there and he takes teams down into Tijuana, Mexico, into the garbage dumps and ministers to the kids there and just shows them the love of God and shows the love of God to their wife. He says he's down there in the dumps. He said, I was down in, this guy told Francis, he said, I was down in Tijuana with him not too long ago. And we would walk in the streets and all these kids would run up to him and they would throw their arms around him and they would hug him and they had such deep affection for him. He figured out how to get them to showers. He figured out how to get them food. And then this is what this guy said. He said, Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into, and he would tell them about God. People were just drawn to his love and affection. And, and then Dan, this gentleman, said this. He said, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing I ever experienced to walking with Jesus. And this is what Francis said. He said, hearing this made me think, would anyone in their right mind say that about me? And would anyone say that about Would anyone say, after spending time with you, spending time with me, that was like spending time with Jesus? That is probably a little bit what Jesus is like. Or maybe, I really hope that's what Jesus is like. See, that's what Jesus was doing in these 12 men. He asked them to come to him and walk with him. He didn't just say, go out and work for me. He said, come and be with me. Come and walk with me. For three years, he walked with them. And they learned how he taught, and they learned what he cared about, and they learned what he valued, and they learned what he loved. And when they walked with him, only then could they work for him. Because then they looked like him. And it's the same for you and for me. For us to do any work for Jesus that's of any value, we have to spend time walking with him. And that's how you go from being a B-league talent to accomplishing a big league vision for God. And so if you're attempting to work for God, my question is, are you walking with him? Are you spending time with him on a regular basis and becoming like him? or if you've been walking with him maybe many years, then what's the work he's called you to? Are you preaching and doing battle in spiritual realms as he called his disciples to do? Because that's what he's called you to do. Share him with people around you. He hasn't called you just to be here and just wait until you die or wait until he comes. He's called you to share this message of hope with people around you, that he loves them, he came and he died for them, that in Jesus, they can find freedom, that Jesus chooses them, that he calls them, and that he loves them. And you say, well, I don't think they'd be interested. Well, you were. They're not that different from you, right? But he calls you to share with them, to love them, and to pray for them and do that spiritual battle for them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we recognize that many of us often feel like, uh, Lord, we're kind of B-team talent. And yet you've called us to this big league vision, and you have big league expectations on us, Lord. And so, Father, Lord, as we come before you today, we may not look like much, may not look like much in our own eyes, And certainly when others look at us, they may not think much. But Father, may we understand and get caught up in your vision and who you are and what you have called us to, Lord. Father, may we understand that it's not who we are that really matters, it's who we're with. It's not the raw material that determines the outcome, Lord, of the vessel. It's the potter. It's the potter who's shaping the vessel. It's your hands on our lives. It's our time with you that allow us to become who you're calling us to be. And so, Father, we ask today that you would make us into the people you're calling us to be, into the church you want us to be. Father, we're asking that you would take this raw material, this B-League talent, And, Lord, help us to accomplish great things for your kingdom. Lord, I pray for the men and women in here, Lord, who as we talk about sharing the gospel have friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers and people they love and care about that they want to share Jesus with but haven't been able to or haven't had the boldness to or haven't seen the open door. Lord, I ask that you would open those doors. Open those doors for us not to keep or hide this gift. This hope that you offer. Lord, and I pray that you'd also help us to continue in prayer and be faithful to do that spiritual battle for people we love, people you died for, for your sake, Lord. We thank you for those who have gone before us. Lord, who have prayed and battled and shared for us. We pray that we would be those people for those who will come behind us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close out our service in prayer this morning.